I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Planning spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. I'm here with Pete Holmes, who um, has graciously had me on his podcast, and so now he's... A favorite guest. Graciously. <laughs> you graciously said that I was gracious. Okay. You were a great guest. People love that episode. Oh, good. People, you know, it's, it's people like you that you could just listen to, and whether or not you've heard it before, or either, even if you're not understanding fully, because sometimes you go, you go deep... You have a quality that people enjoy listening to. So you were a wonderful guest. Oh. And that I benefit from all the time. Thank you so I'm much. benefiting from it right okay. now. Um, so just uh, to frame it, you know, this is in relation to uh, the book that I have coming out in October 2019, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. I think of Pete as somebody who's clearly wrestling with the integration of these three elements of life. Mm-hmm. Of course, also has a beautiful new family. Upstairs upstairs and new baby so that's another element but in terms of he's clearly a creative person and um he has a uh, show on hbo called crashing which is delightful and very original actually in the premise of it and the execution of it but he's also been forced to take on the mantle of being the boss of the whole thing yeah well you want to talk in quotes chris rock has a great quote where he says to assume that a comedian would be good at running a tv show it's like assuming a waiter would be good at being a chef or running a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. that is the jump. Like going, there's something really interesting with taking people like Judd and Conan that, I, that I've worked with that have produced the shows that I did. Part of their job, I imagine, is trying to sniff out the types of comedians I think that they could imagine might be good. Of course, you'd just be guessing, but might be good at running a restaurant. They, they're trying to find waiters that might be good restaurant managers. Wow. But it's a very different skill set, obviously. Well, so this is Judd Apatow we're talking about, who's the executive producer? He's the executive producer, yep. So did he find you or did you find him? That's a good question. I think, you know, in my imaginary Emmy speech or Golden Globe speech, <laughs> I, I would thank Conan. You could give it right now if you want Well, to. I don't have it written out. <laughs> I would thank a metaphor for a mystery, which is Joseph Campbell's definition of God. Okay. I think, I think that would be kind of cute. But maybe it's obnoxious. I don't know. <laughs> but everyone says, thank God. I, I would like to say, right. like to thank a metaphor for a mystery that we call God. Um, but I would thank Conan because Conan, I did stand up on Conan's show. I know you're all about, I don't know if you're all about, but I set a goal when I started doing stand up that I wanted to be on Conan by the time I was 30. And I started doing stand up when I was 21. Mm-hmm. So actually looking back, that's a pretty modest goal or a realistic goal to give yourself nine years to get on Conan. I feel like most people now 
a lot of younger people are like Conan within three years, four so years. So you had a thing. very clear thought in your mind, I'm doing this stand-up thing. Yeah. And my objective is to get to a level where I can be, be on the Conan show. Yeah, because I loved I love Conan. But with everything that goes with that, which is a certain amount of like credibility and notoriety and ability to sort of get regular work. I think it was just the thought that if I could get on Conan, the types of comedians that I saw that were on Conan mm-hmm. all seemed to be like working headlining comedians. Mm-hmm. So it actually is kind of pure. It wasn't like, and then mm-hmm. I'll get a show. Right. Okay. It wasn't, and that, it, honestly, I'm being real, the fantasy wasn't, and then my parents will see it. It was just that my community seemed to be, that was one of the sticks that measured our community, uh-huh. was whether or not you could get a late night set. Mm-hmm. Especially this is 2001 Okay, when I'm starting, 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And not to say it doesn't mean anything now, but back then it meant even more. It, this is pre-YouTube. You, could, you didn't have a way to prove that you were a stand-up right. other than being televised. So that was the holy grail for comedians at that point. For me, he sort of picks your one. Like Letterman was much more jokey jokes. Like he, he wants a comedian to be able to stand there and say the jokes. Mm-hmm. Almost like reading Twitter. Like he wants <laughs> setups and punchlines. Um, I remember your favorite joke of mine. I had that joke. I always think of you when I tell it about how prostitution is the oldest profession. And I say, what about farming? Like, how, how could that have been the first job? We need an infrastructure. Like, that's a joke you could tell on Letterman. It's just, it's just words. Yeah. I tend to be very silly, and I like to act things out and make faces or whatever. Right. And that seemed to go more in with Conan's style. Because you want the host to match yeah. your sensibility. So you could go with Conan. or uh, I'm trying to think. This, this might have been Kimmel's early days, but Kimmel wasn't having a lot of guys on. Anyway, I saw something... So to answer your question, I saw something in Conan that seemed to resonate with me. I was like, this seems like my kind like of person. Fit. I didn't give it enough uh-huh. okay. manifesting to go like, that's the mm-hmm. ticket. Yeah. And I think that's key. Because mm-hmm. the first thing that the first break that happened for me was a late night talk show that was on after Conan. We did 80 episodes, eight, eight, zero, uh, which isn't a ton. It's not a little either. It was a good run. Um, but I think it would have been preposterous when I was 22, to say, I'm going to have a late night show that follows Conan O'Brien. Not that there's anything, I I love dreaming big. I dream big all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful thing and an important thing. And we can get to that later because I have a specific moment where I learned that. But I I think it's just too specific. That's really the problem. Mm-hmm. Is it's not that it's it's oh it's it's per, you should be embarrassed to have such a goal. No, I just think it's too specific. And you're sort of in the wild west, or you're in the ocean, and you're a shark in the ocean, or you could be a loving animal like a whale. But you, you can move in any direction. And you sort of have to stay open. And this is the quote that I had mm-hmm. that I sort of confidently predicted that you might like, which is, um, you should follow the dream that's following you, or you should follow the dream that's also following you. Uh-huh. So you look for the clues that are coming in. Something that you run into in show business, maybe any any business, any endeavor, is a lot of people that are like really pointing to one thing and trying to force their shoe to fit, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And you want to say, and I tell younger comedians, I'm like, follow the dream that's also following you. So you start getting these clues, right? Yeah. So I did stand up. On Conan when I was 31. I got divorced, so I counted that year. Year off. <laughs> it was a year off. Right. So I still was like, I still met the goal. Right. I just had a year off because I, I had a divorce. Um, so I did it when I was 31. And then I did it again maybe six months later or something. And it was when I did that that they said uh, they're trying to find a host to, to do a late night show. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's when that started to become a reality. And so this goes back to Judd. Judd was a fan of the show. Of the Conan show? Of the Con- of, of, of the Pete Holmes show after Conan. So yeah, the Conan the, show. Okay, you took over Conan's show. I didn't take over. I was after Conan's show. So every every late night host has a show that goes Did on he after. Did he resign from that? Or? No, no, no. Conan's still on. Right. But, but so, so, in other words, there was a, no, a new show that you took over. Yes. After you had done your stint on the Conan show, you did a bit on the, uh, an appearance on the Conan show. I did a late night set and then we met and he said, I want to give you your own TV show and it will air after my show. Conan. 
Yeah. So oh, it was called the, the Peter Holmes Show. Perfect. And how long did that run for? 80 episodes. Okay. Wow. And then Judd was a fan of that show. I see. Which goes back to why in my Emmy or Golden Globe fake acceptance speech in my mind, I would thank Conan. Yeah. Because Conan was the first person who sort of plucked me, not out of nothingness, but out of almost exactly nothingness, <laughs> and said, this kid has something that I like. Mm. And he gave me a shot. And J.P. Buck, the booker, gave me a shot. And Jeff Ross, his producer, gave me a shot. So I, I always have their names right, on, right in my hip pocket because I'm ready to thank them. So then Judd sees it, is a fan of the show, and then that led to crashing did he reach out and get in touch with you as, as a fan of the show? Or how did you No, how did we, we did a, a sketch on the show where, um, I forget exactly how it came up, but maybe his name came up as somebody that we could do something with. You're, you're pitching a lot of ideas, and you're like, oh, maybe now that I know Judd, I know this is a very obvious idea, sort of like your friend Christopher Guest must get things like this all the time where they're like, the joke is that I'm pitching you movie ideas, right? Mm -hmm. But that, that's what we pitched him. But because he liked the show, he said yes. So we shot, this gets a little confusing, but we shot a sketch mm -hmm. for the talk show where I'm pitching him movies. And in that sketch, which is fake, we start improvising and he asks me what my real idea is. Uh -huh. In fact, most of it was improvised. He says, what is your real idea? And I pitched him in the sketch yeah. the idea for Crashing. That's not why we made Crashing. But if you want, it's still on YouTube. You can find the sketch. But maybe a year later, when, um, Crash, uh, when the talk show, Pete Holmes show, was canceled, there was a, uh, a window there where it was still airing, but I didn't know what I was going to do next. And because I knew Judd a little bit from doing that sketch, mm -hmm. I asked him if he would want to meet. And then I pitched him the same idea again, but this time in earnest. <laughs> what a great story. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's crazy. It also, it, it, in the book, I t there's a whole chapter actually on what Tibetans call tendril, which you and I have discussed actually in some length. We've called it 220. Uh -huh. the, the, and, and the sort of more uh, conventional English term would be synchronicity. Yeah, it's very 220, that yeah, story. Following, following the um, shape of, of uh, the melody of circumstances. But that's what I mean, is it was following me. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So we were going out to a lot but of... But then you people. followed it. I did follow it. But there was something for me to follow. That's right. It was dark. The staircase was dark. <laughs> but I could see the first couple stairs and... And honestly... That's a good quote right there. I could see the first couple of steps. The staircase was dark, but I could see the first couple of steps. <laughs> That's it. I think I might like that. There, okay, good. Um, as long as you get one that you like. I like both of them. But, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, again, having a show on HBO that Judd produces is too... It's, it's not too preposterous or too grand of a dream. It's a, it's a noble dream. It is a dream that I had. Right. But it was too specific. So I just was looking for the clues right. in the ether. And when he responded to that, you know, you sort of keep it in the back of your mind. Like, oh, when I have the opportunity to do something, I might um, knock on his door again. Yes. Yeah. So, of course, working, networking, working with relationships with people, proactively sort of um, pretending you actually are in a business. Yeah. Which I think a lot of creative people, my guess is that there's going to be several different kinds of people who are going to take advantage of the book. But one is a creative type of person who really is a little clueless about how to transform that into an entrepreneurial venture I mean, and a livelihood. I sort of admire the purist, yeah. you know, the guy that's like, I just, I write songs in my bedroom and I, I don't even need to perform them. Um, and that that's why, like, I'm not convinced that I'm... I don't think I am the, the most talented necessarily, mm -hmm. but I am fortunate to have, I got it from my father. I got it somewhat from my genes, a little bit of common sense when it comes to like, I, it's a fine dance mm -hmm. when you're pitching a show to Judd. Right. People have asked me about that and I, I can't wait to tell my grandkids the story. Of course they probably won't care, but I'll, well, I'll at least have, have a daughter now. So you're yeah, on your way. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I'll have to mythologize right. it. They might not know who any of the players are in you know 2042 sure. yeah. <laughs> but um 
it is like a Paul Bunyan tale. You're going to yeah. like the comedy producer. And they are archetypes in a way too. So the, he story, is. the stories are going to still work. The story will work. Right. They just might not recognize the names. You know, it is a little too 20. It's very present. Yeah. So just and explain what we mean by that for people who are listening. 220? Yeah. It's just, well, I think presence is a better is a better word for okay. it. being uh, very present. Very present. Yeah. So when I think of when I pitched mm-hmm. that show to him, mm-hmm. it's a vivid memory because I was very aware. Mm-hmm. I was being very conscious. Mm-hmm. So like good acting or good stand up or a good pitch, mm-hmm. none of it should have the feeling of uh, you know Slime. It shouldn't be slimy. Yeah. It should be natural. Yeah. It should be organic. So you're going in and, and you have a couple things jotted literally on like a napkin that you from the hotel you stayed at the night before. I flew in just to pitch it to him in New York. And, you know, on the plane, I'm writing down a couple things that I might say. Mm-hmm. A couple arrows in your, yeah. you know, whatever that's called, your quiver. Quiver, yeah. Although that opens the lane to quite a few other applications of the word quiver. Yes, that's that we'll true. leave for another book. We'll say arrow sack. Okay. <laughs> so I had a couple arrows in my arrow sack that I was ready to go with. But like, as someone who's interviewed a lot, mm-hmm. I, I don't see a lot of presence. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of people going like, I'm going to listen. I'm going I'm, to, I'm a child of alcoholics. I'm very good at like, determining someone's mood Mm -hmm. and their facial expressions and their response and their openness to an idea. So I think I had 15 minutes. And for the first 12, it was very early in the morning, I was talking to him about him. And and that's not, I wasn't manipulating him, Mm -hmm. but I was telling him walking that fine line. I understand it's a little grotesque to talk about this. Like I'm so special or something. A lot of people can do this, but you know, you, you, how much, do you want to butter his bread? How much do you want to tell him something that's true, yeah. which is your movies changed my life. Like mm-hmm. they're the only comedies I see in the theater. Yes. Those are some of the things that I think I did say, mm-hmm. but you don't overdo it. But how do you know that? I actually think it might be because I had alcoholic parents. Like, you know, when to pull back, mm. you go like, I really love your work, right. but you don't want to scare them away. It's like, right. it's like talking to a deer in the woods right. to keep going with the arrows. <laughs> so there's another chapter about how to, Keep it simple and concise yeah. in terms of when you're presenting something. Right. Which basically is an elevator pitch. So we gave a few examples of an elevator pitch. Right. Which doesn't have to be for entertainment. It could be like to, to build a company in Japan. It could be uh, to, to um, uh, you know, start some kind of yoga studio and get an investor. Sure. It could be anything. But how can you say it very concisely? You know, and the best thing to have with an elevator pitch it seems like, sorry, to, I'm not trying to force. It seems like there would be a Japanese word for this. It's no. some sort of pre-knowledge of the person is mm-hmm. is golden. Of so who you're talking to. If Judd knows me even a little bit, right. which he did, uh-huh. and he has a favorable image of me. Right. And even if it's just a little tea sandwich of favor. Right. When you're going in, you can you have a, a place to start. Yeah. I know you know this from the time. We probably started by remembering the sketch that we shot on the talk show. Yeah. We talked a little bit about his movies. I think I maybe even asked his his right-hand man, uh, yeah. another producer named Josh Church, who's now a friend of mine. I think I maybe even asked him, hey, how much does he like it yeah. talking about his own work? Right. Does that, like, put him off? Right. Or is he okay with it? And he told me, he was like, I think he likes it. It's okay. So then you, you're walking that line. But really what it is is being present, looking for those clues. Yeah. How, how, how tired is he... When, you know, this is a Japanese expression. Let them open the kimono first. It's that idea. <laughs> it's this idea of like, I don't want, I want, even though my heart is racing yeah. and I have a lot on the line, yeah. I'm going to wait yeah. for the right moment to present itself. Sure. Nobody likes like eager sweatiness. Yeah. They love certainty, especially yeah. in people that shouldn't be certain. Yeah. So you're going in, you have your 15 minutes with the decision maker of Hollywood comedy, and you try and find that way. I can hear Jed laughing at me as I tell the story, by the way. But you look for that natural, in-the-flow moment to go, I think this is when you manage the idea. So the technique would be have a conversation, if it's a pitch, if it's a presentation, and if if it's conversational. 
you have the conversation and I guarantee if you're talking to someone about comedy, something he loves, something is going to come up and in that moment you go, well, that's a lot like the idea that I wanted right. to tell you about. Right. And then it's natural. It's not that hard. Yeah. He was just getting back into stand-up mm-hmm. and he's telling me about how hard it is right. to like, get back in it. Right. And I was like, well, that's, that's what I want to make a show about is I've seen a lot of shows about stand-up, but I haven't seen a lot of shows about what it's like to start in stand-up. So that was very synchronicitous. Synchronous. Synchronicitous. There's one other element, though, which is how good is the idea itself? Because it's really interesting. You could have the clearest uh, idea, and you could have the best timing. I mean... But how good is the idea? See, this this is what I love. We are of the same mind. Yeah. Right? The thing has to be good. Right. You could take all of this advice and it wouldn't matter. Here's a line if, if the thing isn't good. The line that I had written on the hotel napkin was, I'm not pitching this to you yeah. because you can get it made. Yeah. I'm pitching this to you because this seems like the kind of idea you would like. Right. I think you would add value to us because I didn't want him to think I was trying to pick his pocket. And I wasn't. Because the idea was good. And when I came up with the idea, I thought, I, I felt, I said, this is a Judd Apatow idea. So in the pitch, I said, I'm not going around. I'm not pitching this to everyone I right. know. Right. I'm not taking other meetings. There is no other meeting. I had this idea. You want to talk about, it's an even better story. Like I, I pitched Comedy Central, a sketch show. Because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. My talk show had just been canceled. And I was like, well, let's go sp- pitch a sketch show to Comedy Central. And we went in. And in the what we're talking about, the 10 minutes where you're just chatting, the head of Comedy Central said, well, one thing's for sure. We don't want another sketch show. And we all just sort of laughed. And then we, <laughs> and then we just acted like we didn't have an idea. We just came in to talk. Right. Uh, and then I went in my car. I think it was a Tuesday. And I was very frustrated and I was like, what do I want to do? And I had that moment, like a little bit of a breakdown. Not an, it wasn't painful or bad, but it was a little bit desperate. And I asked myself, well, what would you do if you could do anything? Like, what would you do if you could do anything? And the answer was, I loved the show Girls. I loved that half hour HBO comedy style. Right. And that's a Judd Apatow show. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what is your Judd Apatow idea? And then I thought for a while, and it, and it really just came to me. I always had the idea of a show about me. That's not mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. But then I thought of the engine, is what you call it, the idea that every episode I'm staying with another comedian. Mm-hmm. And then you go, oh, you can sell that. It's hard to sell. Like, it's a show about Pete. You really have to like Pete if you want to make a show about Pete. Yeah. You go, it's a show about Pete, but he's playing this guy who's starting out. Mm-hmm. His wife leaves him. And then every episode, he's staying on the couch of a different other yeah, comedian. It's a very clearly defined engine. It, it's, you want to talk, we were talking off mic, the idea of it's hard to put Jesus in someone else's heart. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. if you can find something that when I say that to you. It'll resonate. And you can imagine it. Yeah. You go, oh, well, what would a Jerry Seinfeld episode be like? But you also had, you had this? I mean, a couple of things that we're talking about. You had a very clear visualization of the project. Yeah. Um, you had you paid careful attention to the synchronicity of bumping into who might be appropriate to work right. with it, and then you followed through and you found the right timing. Well, so my my I tease my manager because I'm just like he's he's anyway I don't need to tease him here, but he knows Judd. Yeah, and I called him and I was like I have an idea. So this was that Tuesday, and he was like, Well, they said they can see you on Friday, so I flew on Thursday night to New York to pitch him on Friday morning. And I flew back Friday afternoon. I flew just from New York. I mean, to from New LA. York, from LA to New York. So I just booked one night in a hotel, yeah. went to bed like at seven o'clock. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, cause I had to meet him at like six in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was not going to miss it. It's a very romantic story, obviously yeah. not. So if you had to give the elevator pitch now for the show, just as an example of how you'd, Take that very, very clear idea of what the premise is. Yeah. And you had only, you know, let's say once you've gotten through the small talk and the setup, now here's the pitch. What, what would the, the pitch for Crashing be? Well, it, it would be 
made up of some of the phrases that I just said. So I'm afraid that can you just say it? Sure. Like as a pitch. I've seen a lot of shows about stand-up, but I haven't seen a show about starting in stand-up and what it's like to start as a stand-up in New York. Okay, so this is a show about starting as a stand-up in New York. And telling secrets, because if you're not telling secrets, who cares? So we're telling secrets of what it takes to begin as a comedian in New York. From the perspective of me, a guy whose wife left me, I grew up religious, my wife had an affair when I was 28, she left me, I had nowhere to live. So my character crashes on the couch of a different established comedian every episode. Done. That's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, even some of that stuff in there is a little extraneous. Yeah. Really, you would say it's the story of a guy whose wife leaves him. He's trying to do comedy, but he's an open micer. Right. His wife leaves him. He has nowhere to live. So he ends up crashing on different couches of different comedians as he gets better. Right. That's like the most simple right. version. But it's also it's an important piece that he's... That it's showing the life of a startup comedian in New York City. That's those right. Are, those are well, you, if you can find something that hasn't been done yet, there's yeah. a show. I, I, wonder, I wonder if you've seen it. It's called Big Mouth on Netflix. And it's a cartoon about puberty. And it's just amazing. It's yeah. so funny. My yeah. friend Nick Roll. Isn't puberty a cartoon already? Or I know. Cartoon? But don't you see, like, it needed to be on Netflix because right. puberty is so gross. <laughs> so <laughs> you need, like... so necessary. I know. Yeah. But the jokes you're going to be making on a show about puberty, it needs to be a cartoon and it needs right. to be on Netflix. So there's two important things. Sure. Like these, this thing needs to be and it needs to be here yeah. and it needs to be now. So if you can find an idea that addresses something that's been right under our nose, puberty, yeah. or starting in comedy, and address that in a creative way, then then you're cooking with something instead of just going like, it's because people are always like, it's just another show about a comedian. Right. And you're like, it's, it's called crashing because he's on couches, but he keeps failing because that's what it's like yeah. when you're starting. Yes. And the show is, in my humble opinion, very consistent with the original intention. We've done it's an okay job. Yeah. With it. Now, I want to follow this all the way through because actually we'll cover all the points of what we're talking about. Sure. Um, but in the book I said, here's an example of an elevator pitch. The elevator opens. The head of the nuclear physics department at Columbia University is on the elevator. Albert Einstein walks into the elevator. He knows who that is. He has his business card. He writes on it, E equals MC squared. Hands the professor the card, bows, and walks out of the elevator. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. He goes, what's E? E could be anything. These letters represent things. I don't know what they represent. Well, now you have to call me. Yeah. But, um, you know, also, um, uh, you know, any show that you can think of. So there are other examples like that. So you clearly focused in a way, I'm just seeing, trying to see if some of the premises are, are accurate. And so far you had a visualization, you were able to crystallize it in your mind. You uh, created a situation in which you had kind of created the right contacts and networking for you to, to at least make a good presentation of your thing. You made a good presentation. You sort of played that out. Well, now what happens next? Can I also say something about pitching? Sure. Um, sometimes in show business, it's kind of a known thing that you can pitch a concept in a pilot with full awareness that by episode 10, you won't be doing it anymore. Take the show Friends, right? It's a yeah. show about six friends. Right. How do you sell that? Uh, well, you can't really do What's Seinfeld? Well, it's a show that's different because it's a show about Jerry Seinfeld, who mm-hmm. was a very popular mm-hmm. comedian when they sold that show. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. Cheers. It's a show about a bar. Like, these are hard mm-hmm. things to sell now. Mm-hmm. So you need a concept even more sure. than you ever did, yeah. or at least a tone yes. that is unique. So what, that's what made excite, it, it exciting when I thought of the engine. I was like, he's crashing on a couch every episode. Boom. That, that explains a lot about the show, about what will make it different. Mm-hmm. But people listening or reading this should know that there is, it's not really a bait and switch, but like sometimes you sell a higher concept idea, sure. knowing that that concept is going to melt like snow over time. And then season three, people are going, how did they get that show made? It's just about two guys talking. You know what I mean? And you're like, well, we got it made because season one they were traveling through time, you know? <laughs> and then we dropped that idea slowly. Yeah. Yes. That happens all the time. Okay. Shows get more and more simple as sure. you go. And then it becomes character-driven, right? Exactly. But that's what we're doing. We're in the third season. We have a luxury. You don't have to introduce them because yeah. you already know them. You know, like but in, what happens if people get tired of the couch premise? 
Exactly. You may need to just travel on. But the couch premise also has built into it how he's going to meet people. He's getting passed around. So now we're going to meet a world. And then once that world's established, you know, by the end of season two, you know, Pete's pretty much living with his girlfriend. So he's not doing the premise anymore. And then it it continues to fade even more the more success he gets. So... That's why it's good that good crashing point. works on two two levels. But now come back in time when you've now sort of followed through on these principles, which require some discipline and some understanding of what's going on. They're not just like, you know, sometimes I think people think it's all in the wind. Right. You, you had some focus and some clarity about it. Well, can I speak to that? Sure. <laughs> well, this is self-serving, uh, this story, but it's also important. Okay. Is that it went like this. I pitched the idea to Jen on the set of Trainwreck. And then at the end of the pitch, he didn't say, let's do it. That's not, that's just not how anything works. Mm-hmm. Nobody, you don't open your mouth until you know you want to do it. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of show a little bit of interest. So he goes, but he wants to test you. It's very sensei student mm-hmm. situation. And I've seen him do it with other people. Mm-hmm. He says, it's a great idea. Write it. And I, so that's the test. So he doesn't want, I always say this, I've told this story many times. The New Yorker, for example, I drew cartoons for the New Yorker. The New Yorker, you could hand in the best, funniest, most perfectly drawn cartoon to the New Yorker. They have their cartoon meetings on Tuesdays and you could go, you could go in the building, tell them you're there for the cartoon meeting. They'll let you up, go in. You'll have a sit down with the guy. You'll have to wait your turn, but you'll go in. You could show him the most perfect... He'll look at it and he'll die laughing. They won't buy it. They want you to bring 10 great cartoons Mm -hmm. every week for months before they'll even consider buying one. Because they're good on cartoons. They told me that. They're like, we have enough cartoons that if we don't buy another cartoon, we could still run for 40 years and have plenty of cartoons. Like, we don't need cartoons... We need cartoonists. We need people to do it. So similarly, Jed doesn't need an idea. He needs a guy who can do the idea, write the thing when he says do it. So here's the guy, and the guy says do it. And I've seen him do this with other people, and he's told me stories. Uh, Him and other producers have told me stories of someone saying, I have an idea for you. Oh, my God, it's always been my dream to pitch this to you. Hey, I like it. Write it. Never hear of them again. Oh, really? just goes away. It, this is a shock to most people. Sure. But he, I, well, I hope it's a shock to people who read the book. They're learning a lesson from that. Well, you know, be careful yeah. what you ask for. What yeah. There's a Hindu expression. Don't make friends with an elephant tamer. If you don't have room for an elephant in your living room. <laughs> so that that's true. Like, okay, yes. you want to, you want to be in the yeah. big leagues. We'll get in the batter's box and we're going to throw a hundred mile fastballs yeah. at you. And maybe people don't want that. And I understand that. There's a unique fear yes. associated in getting something you want, especially when you think you're a fraud. And we all secretly kind of think we're mm-hmm. frauds somewhere in there. Well, there's another point there, which is we are saying in the book, it's fine if you just want to be a creative. Maybe you want to make a fabulous Thanksgiving dinner for your family. Sure. That's hugely creative. Maybe you just enjoy going shopping. Right. But if you want to move that into a business realm, part of the premise of the book is that you need some skills that are apart from the creative and this is where your reaction to stress and pressure Mm. is important i happen to when i'm there's a there's a principle of like basketball players when the stakes are higher they play better yeah i'm not i'm not saying that's always true for me lebron james for example they want the noise the noise of the crowd yeah Yeah. yes yeah It's it's amazing Right. Well, their stress elevates their performance. Some people shrink and some people elevate. And he says, write it. My heart gets jacked. And I, again, it has a little, everything has to do with alcoholic parents. I want to be the perfect guy. Like I'm, a, I'm an achiever and I'm a pleaser. So he says, write it. So I re- usually, I don't know how long it takes other people, but I wrote it in two days. I wrote this one episode or what? One episode in two days. The full episode or, or yeah. an outline? No, it's the full episode. And then he said, it's good, uh, write another one. And we did that five times. And every time it took two days and I I sent it back to him. So that was a real prove it. This is a great part of the story and very important part. I think so too. Because the whole thing could have fallen apart easily right there. Well, he he doesn't need any more cartoons. 
He's the New Yorker. He doesn't need a cartoon. He needs a cartoonist. And he doesn't just need a comedian with an idea. He needs an operator. Okay. And that's that's the thing you really want to be. You want to be an operator. You want to be somebody that like makes things when they say they make it can can focus creative energy, the wispy muses and go, I'll just fucking write this thing. I'll just do it. So then at a certain point, does it become, okay, green light, we're going to make this? Well, after I wrote five, um, he was like, okay, let's go pitch it. And Jed would laugh at me giving advice on how to pitch it because he thinks I'm terrible at pitching Uh because I like talking. So he wants. He can't laugh that hard because you pitched it to him and you and you and you were successful. I was better with him when we went into HBO. Oh, okay. We only pitched it two places: HBO and Amazon. Yeah. And um, both pitches, he was like, "Talk less." <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "You're saying way too much." Okay. After he, the, he didn't say after the, the pitch, meeting, did he? After both pitches, he yeah. he sort of teased me. He was like. Yeah. You need to calm down <laughs> because I was excited. Like I would tell them everything that I could ever imagine possibly being in the show. Luckily, HBO, luckily they liked the pitch, even though I was very excitable. I think it demonstrated my personality. No false advertising. I'm a big loud animal and that's what I was in the pitch. And that's what they well, got. Well, long story short, shows on television. Well then, the, yeah, I mean, Long story short is is a great way to put it because every step of that process, I've told people like show business is is slow business. Mm-hmm. I went to the guy yeah. with a relationship with the network, and that network was asking him, "Do you have another idea?" We went in and pitched it. They bought it. You're still looking at like six months, and then you shoot the pilot. And, and what's happening in that six months? How do you negotiate with them? I wish Val was here. I'm not really good at, at time. Do you have representatives, rep, people representing you for the business aspect? Or are you pulling the strings? Or are you Kind of. Yeah, there's lawyers and stuff that are negotiating. But are you paying careful attention to that? Or just going, they'll take care of that? I am fortunate that I have good people on that. They tell me what is normal. Right. They tell me what they asked for. And then they tell me what they landed on. So that's another thing in the book. Find capable support team. Yeah. Let them do their work. Yeah, the lawyers are. That's how it went. You didn't have to. You didn't have my to. My agents it. and my lawyers are very good at that, right. and I've always, you know, trusted them. I've also worked with them on a bunch of different things, and I also know that the better they do, the more money they get. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that yeah. they have like all this love for me. They also benefit when they score more. So the deal is made. But the point that you want to talk about it, like you have to be able to keep the fire burning. For a long time. It's like a year mm-hmm. from them saying yes. A year. So pick a virtue there. Patience. Six parameters, right? <laughs> you can pick generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, mindfulness, and uh, discriminating awareness or discernment. Well, I would say patience. <laughs> so patience is involved. A lot of patience. There's a lot of burst energy in this kind of thing. Dude, all it is is patience. Then you shoot the pilot. Then you have to wait to see if they pick it up. Okay. This is the lifestyle. Okay. I've stopped drinking. It's been about a year. But like you want to talk about the the sea goblin that eats all of my people. Mm -hmm. You say, B.B. King said, uh, I play the shows for free. They pay me to travel. I say, I make the show for free. They pay me to wait. It's crazy. And it's just how it is. It's not like HBO delights in making yeah. me wait. They're doing their due diligence. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. It's what it is. You need to wait for there to be a slot in their yeah. calendar. And it doesn't help to be a pouting, spoiled. But, power. buddy, if there's anything that'll drive you to drink, because you just want to time travel. Mm. You want to time travel. Right. You can see where you want to be, and they're telling you wait six months. It's a little like spiritual practice, isn't it? In that regard? It sure is. <laughs> yeah, you know what you want. And they're yeah. like, okay, go, just go sit, there go sit on that cushion. And right. they're like, motherfucker, I want to be over there. Is it, well, this is what you said, um, discipline. This mm-hmm. is now, that would be, and I wasn't very good at it. I'm better at it now. Because mm-hmm. technically we're waiting right now. We're always sort of waiting. We made the third season. Once it airs, probably after six episodes, they'll tell us whether or not we're going to do a fourth season. So now, Which by the time this podcast airs, we will know. Isn't that wild? That's the case. So we're sort of in the back to the future moment here. I know. Future Pete might be listening. 
But you know what, future peeps? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a great idea for something. Future right peeps. Future peeps. Future yeah. peeps. Yeah. Well, I think about future peeps. He knows what I don't know. But, but like this Pete, <laughs> the third time now, it's basically the fourth time. You have to wait for the pilot. Yeah. You have to wait to see if season one gets a season two. You have to wait to see if season two gets a season three. Now we're waiting to see if season three will get a season four. And it does get better. Mm. But it is excruciating. Val always reminds me. Val's your wife, just for people. My wife, know. yeah. She goes, this is really hard on you. Every year I go, I can't believe how hard this is. And she goes, "You, because I don't have a good memory for that. Mm-hmm. It's actually beneficial. Sure. I sort of delete it right when I'm done with it. Yeah. But I go, this is brutal. And she goes, Pete, you get depressed every year. So this is, the, this is important. This is that grit of not fucking around. Yes. It's like you do the work, but then... You do the waiting, uh, and that's that's a part of it. It's like, can you stay healthy mm-hmm. and functional? Yes. You need to look. So the pilot shoots here. Six months later, we shoot episode two. Can you look the same? Oh. You know what I mean? Can you resist the urge to eat your feelings for six months? Because oh. it's a lot of waiting. You want to eat noodles. Yeah. You want to eat so many noodles because yeah. you're stressed out. Yeah. But you have to you have to look as you did when you shot the pilot. Yes. This is why Hollywood people. Obviously, I'm not that vain. You can tell from looking at me. But you can't. That's a it. good title too. I'm not that vain. <laughs> no, obviously, I'm not that vain. You can tell by looking. Yeah, at yeah, me. yeah. It's true. Um, but you can't balloon out or whatever. Yeah. But if I told you you weren't funny, that would have that you wouldn't like that. Wait. Oh, I don't care if I'm thin. Yeah. yeah just don't tell thin. me I'm not funny. Exactly. That's another funny title. Yeah, there you go. I don't care that I'm not thin. Just yeah. don't tell me I'm not funny. There you go. Although, you know what's fun? And I think you'd like this. Yeah. As you do it longer, you do get to that place where you're just like, I'm not every, I'm not for everybody. You know, how could... That's, but isn't that partly because you found the somebodies that you are for? Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, Pete, there's... Uh, I just want to interject at this point that people listening to this might think, oh, we met each other because we're both, you know, in the, you know, entertainment realms, uh, you know, film and music and television, all that kind of stuff. But actually, just to let everybody know, we met at this retreat. Yeah. I think about four years ago. Is that right? It was four years ago, yeah. Okay. And um, it was, this is a spiritual retreat, really. It's um, Ram Das and Krishna Das host it on the island of Maui at Napili Kai Resort. Beautiful, lovely place. Mm-hmm. And four or five hundred aspirants of all different kinds of people come together. Mm-hmm. And there's yoga classes and meditation classes and there's some Buddhist stuff and there's some bhakti stuff and kirtans and so forth. And I think um, we just got introduced and we sat down at breakfast. Yeah, you just happened to be at the table that I sat at. Started talking, uh-huh. and then the next thing I remember is the waiters coming over saying, "I need to set this table up for lunch." Yeah, yeah, we talked for a really long Three time. Three hours. Yeah, that yeah. it's funny now that I have a baby. I'm like that. Val and I do a good job of passing her off, but if there's anything that's missing, it's the freedom to just have like a three-hour <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> like at some point, I would have been like, "I gotta go." Yeah, but that, I'm glad we got that in under the wire. Well, as a grandpa, I'm sharing with you, you will have that opportunity again. Yes. And, and, and a whole another level to your richness that I comes with it. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're so happy. Yeah, yeah that, that's not even a complaint. I'm just glad that we got it before yeah. I couldn't sure. do it. But, so, um, and and the, 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 the tenor of our first conversations, I mean, obviously we share this sort of, I'm going to say somewhat bemused uh, relationship to, to this industry, which some people take extremely seriously and yeah. kind of like you could say... Um, to, to the detriment of their psychological and emotional well-being. Yeah, for sure. So we met in a context in which people are trying to promote psychological and emotional well-being, yeah. which I'm loosely calling spirituality in the book. Sure. I'm not saying it's this religion or that tradition, but one of the backbone elements is mindfulness and kind of just being with what you're doing. And Well, I think this is, you know, important. I, I think more and more about why we say people sell their soul to show business. Yeah, that, that expression, selling your soul to the devil, like someone wants to learn the fiddle really badly. Mm. So they go to the crossroads and sell their soul to the devil. There is something about extracting who you are, or you know who you think you are, your personality, right. and selling it mm-hmm. for profit can really, it can kill you. 
It can really, yeah, really. You've seen that, right? We've, well, I've experienced yeah. it. Yeah, you, you. We were talking yeah. about the meal that we had. It was the second season of Crashing. The first mistake that I made was that the first season of Crashing was such a thrill for me that I just assumed the second season would naturally just be a thrill for me because mm. it's novelty. But it's a novelty. The first season, there's novelty to it. The first season, yeah, everything's new. Oh, look, somebody has those clackers. They go take one. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, look at that. Yeah. And then season two, it's like, take one, get that fucking thing out of my face. <laughs> like you just start, you can't believe it. Like yeah. you've you've betrayed yourself. Yes. But you start getting a little bit grumpy because I didn't do the work to remember gratitude. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the work to like be present. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one. I was always thinking. Because I know how long it takes to make TV. Mm-hmm. I was in the morning thinking, how long? We have five scenes to shoot, and this first scene just took four hours? Mm-hmm. Are you telling me we have 15 hours, or whatever the mm-hmm. math is, left to do, and yeah. we're not even done? Yeah. So I wasn't in the moment at all. And that's when we had... So you go right from the God realm all the way down to the Hell realm. And, and what makes it a really spicy Hell realm... Yeah is that it was your heaven or your God realm. It was this really, really... And you asked for it. But, like, you, I just lost touch. Like, I I remember one of the darkest thoughts I had was, I don't want to talk to people at the end of the day because that's like acting. Like, having a conversation with someone is mm. listening and responding, commenting, talking. I, it felt like just more work. Today. It's like being a doctor, right? You come home and your kid has a cold. Exactly. Right. But that's insane. Yeah. It's because I had I wasn't filling myself up. Mm-hmm. Mark Duplass did a great episode of my podcast called You Made It Weird, if you want to listen to it, where we talk about soul points. Mm-hmm. And that's about feeding yourself something. Because mm-hmm. while you're giving, to me, the feeling could just be like, it's almost like you're a cow and there's just too many vacuums being hooked up to your udders mm-hmm. and you're just giving too much. Yeah. You asked for it. You begged for it. But now you're not eating enough grass to grow milk. So anyway, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't filling myself back up. Mm-hmm. And it came from a, a certain sort of laziness on my part uh-huh. or an, an assumption. I, I presumed that everything would be just fine. Yeah. And the truth was I was losing my connection to why I was making something. Mm -hmm. I was just making something because they told me I could keep going. Mm -hmm. The first one had a real good why to it. Like I wanted to tell that story. Second season, I was just like, well, I'm going to make a second season because they said we could make a second season. So I lost my compass. Sure. And I got really, really depressed and very irritable. Um, no one could tell because I'm a very, I'm like a waspy, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. It's not good. I, at least I was polite, but inside I was really dying. Well, you remember that time we had, we met for dinner in Brooklyn and I, I looked at your face. Yeah. I said, oh. Well, I was looking for anybody and I didn't have a lot of people, but anybody like yourself that I could tell a dirty secret, which yeah. was, yeah. hey, my dream is coming true and I'm, I'm as sad as I've ever been. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really bad. And um, it's actually, it ties back to this is, is um, I was making it, but there was no joy in it. There was no presence in it. I was really thinking ahead. I was thinking when we were shooting a scene and part of this is my job, but I was really dwelling on like, how are we going to edit this? If someone in the scene didn't know their lines, it would really upset me in a way. There was no lightness to it, but I wasn't meditating. I wasn't studying. Right. For me, contemplation you was... you were exercising maybe too, right? I wasn't exercising and I was drinking a lot and I was smoking a lot right. of pot. Uh, not a lot, but like every day, mm-hmm. like a little bit every day. Mm-hmm. And I love sake. And I would be drinking mm-hmm. a lot of sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was helping me sleep and it was. It was certainly helping me pass out. And you're not Toshiro Mifune. That's right. And I'm not Trungpa Rinpoche either. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, I couldn't swing with it. Yeah. No disrespect to your guru. You know No, that. he drank I know he, sake a day. Yeah, much. I know that. He liked it. Yeah. But I don't want you to think I'm being disrespectful. Oh, but I couldn't handle it. I didn't even know this, but I was waking up in the morning foggy, and I didn't have the faculty. I don't even mean in a metaphysical way. My brain didn't wasn't didn't have the rest it needed to make the chemicals I needed to be happy. Right. 
And I, it's hard to be present when you're not happy mm. or if you can't get in touch. And vice with, versa. Exactly. So there's a loop. Completely true. So the, I've told the story before, so I can tell it pretty briefly, is that Val went to Europe. She mm. Sometimes while we're shooting, right. she'll take a little trip. And I was really low. That might have been when we had dinner. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember, I, it was almost like hearing a voice. It was like, I seem to remember you like listening to Ram Dass. I did not want to listen to Ram Dass yeah. at all. You had a little voice in your head. So yeah, it was my voice. Yeah. It would be a better story if it felt like it was from beyond or something. But it was my voice going, I know, but what voice is that? Yeah. Right? What voice well, is there that? There we go again. Though. I mean, where is beyond? <laughs> yeah, where are well, any of my thoughts coming you say, from? and then what? Exactly. Right. Like, what isn't a miracle? Yeah. I had a thought. What isn't a miracle? Yeah, that's what is it? That's a great title. Too. What isn't a miracle? <laughs> I said once on my podcast, all markers are magic. Not just magic markers. <laughs> but um, I was walking my dog by the river, by the East River, and I sat on a chair and I put my ear, earbuds in. And I just hit play on this Ramdas talk. And it's actually the one at Naropa that I was selling oh, to. Yeah. And the one at Naropa is about a nine-hour lecture. It's, it's broken into parts, but it's nine or 12 hours. It's a very, very long yeah. program. Yeah. And the part that I happened to unpause, he was talking about, I can almost remember it verbatim, but he's talking about playing the game of life for all the points that he knew how to collect. He was a Harvard professor. He was respected. Yeah. He was tenured. He was wealthy. I don't know if he was tenured, but he was wealthy. He had the, especially being from New England, that respect of being a Harvard professor. And this sure. was in the 70s. And sure. it mattered. He was published. And he was intellectually smarter than you. He went to parties and everyone wanted to talk to him. Yeah. He, he kind of alludes to going to orgies and, and uh, drugs, uh, not um, not psychedelics, but, you know, smoking some pot or whatever, drinking. He definitely mentions drinking more, buying an airplane, playing the cello. Right. He was in. Right. So he says, even though I played the game for all the points I knew how to collect, there remained in me what he calls a malaise. There was this malaise, this feeling that somehow he was missing out on what it's really, on what is really going on. And then I'm like, fuck, as soon as I heard the word malaise, I was like, I'm not depressed. I'm in a malaise. Much better way. It's a great Mal-aise. word. Malaise. Like bad. Bad malaise. <laughs> bad A's. What is A's? Like being, maybe. It's just like bad a, being. It's a wet sandwich. Is yeah, what it is. Yeah, it's just okay. nasty business. And it's so nasty that you're not even energized by it enough to be angry yeah. or shake your fist at it. You're just sort of a pile of laundry, yeah. you know, dirty laundry. So when he said malaise, I knew I had my diagnosis. Just like 30 seconds after pressing play, I was like, oh my God. And here I was playing the game for all the points that I knew how to collect. Yeah. I was going to more two entree dinners. Oh, should I get this one or this one? Just get both. Uh-huh. Or desserts for the table. Everything. Mm-hmm. Like more wine, more, let's do shots. Like mm-hmm. just like me and... Hollywood producers, me and writers, me and movie stars, whatever it might be, yeah. going on boats. We would take cruises around the harbor on the weekends. <laughs> there were topless girls. We'd be jumping into the river right by the Statue of Liberty. Just insane stuff. And still. Did they ever come out, back out? The women, they're dead. They're gone. <laughs> Those women are dead. They jumped into the East I didn't River? say they were living. That's a very <laughs> dark joke. But uh, no, they told us that the water was clean. And it was because it was salty. Okay. You could taste it. It was salty. I, I took a big gulp. I live in the East River. You're not going to see me swimming at any time soon. We were pretty far out there. You could yeah. see it moving. I hear you. But everybody says that when I tell this okay. story. We were fine. Um, but I was super depressed. And then, so that, that was me playing it for all I was worth. The, and then Rambas goes on to say, maybe it's not, maybe the malaise isn't bad. Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's a signal mm-hmm. from something deeper inside me. Yeah. And it's not something to medicate or avoid or numb, but it's mm. something to be honored. And he said something that's graceful in you. And I, you know, right there, I, I basically, I didn't crap my pants, but I might as well have, because I was like, this is a signal. I had already been to the Ramdas show. I had already pledged yeah my inner allegiance to it, it f- felt right. But then I forgot it. Mm. And then I got, you know, one more wow. time around the indulgence sure. lap. 
And I think that story would resonate a lot with the people here who've been, you know, you put on and off these kind of tracks. I think that's what gives the whole game a pulse. Yeah. Is right. Ramdas would say the forgetting, it's not a glitch in the system, the forgetting is yeah. part of it. Yeah. So I had, I had it and then I forgot it. Mm. And then the coming back was so much sweeter because I knew what I was coming back. And to be clear to the people out there who think we're talking about something really esoteric, what you forgot is not some kind of like, what you got in the first person, what you forgot, is not some kind of mysterious, vague, spiritually... Yeah. It was just basically being... Absolutely. Being with yourself in a healthy way. Staying in the moment. Yeah. Well, well mm-hmm. Ramdas defines God as consciousness. Mm-hmm. And consciousness, obviously, is a phenomenon that exists most clearly in the moment. So mm-hmm. the more we can... And, and I diagnose my own problem. Right. As, so I, I like the word soul. Living in a soulful way is beyond our minds. Mm-hmm. So our minds are like these thieves. Like beyond the chattering mind. Behind the, ch- the, the drunken monkey. Drunken monkey. That's, that's stealing you from the moment. So after I had that, and I will call it an epiphany, it was for and me. And let's be clear, in that regard, there's no difference at all between the bhakti tradition and Buddhism. No, I know. They both solidly are starting from that ground. Completely agree. Yeah. We've been talking about yeah. that off mic, in case, okay. in case you don't we're know. Just, you know, there's people out there who might not have the reference point or sure. talking about something esoteric. It's not, that, it's not that woo-woo. Yeah. It really yeah. isn't. That's right. It was me saying, Pete, of course, you bought... He says something great in the quote. He goes like, it, you feel bad because you're dissatisfied with the model of satisfaction that the culture is offering mm. you. And they must be right because there's so many of them. Yeah. And really what the epiphany is and the waking up is, is that's not where the juice is at all. That's the fake media, right? That's, that's the fake news. <laughs> it is. It's, it's a beer commercial. Yeah. Literally, my life had become a beer commercial. Wow. And I was getting heavier and eating more and drinking more mm-hmm. and all these different indulgences because I am a sensory being. Mm-hmm. And I thought pleasure meant fucking having as many fun. orgasms as I could and mm-hmm. eating. I mean, taste orgasms and brain orgasms sure. and penis orgasms, all the different orgasms. Because that's what they tell us. Mm-hmm. Get money so you can have enough time off to yeah. feel as much ecstasy as you can. Mm-hmm. And obviously that wasn't working. And, and, and true bliss, you know what, this is my own definition for enlightenment is um, happy for no reason. Mm. <laughs> is because happy. Title, yeah, it, it's been taken. I, I Googled Has it. it? Yeah. it was oh. some cheesy self. I don't know if it's cheesy. It looked cheesy, but it was that self-help book. Because I considered calling my book happy for no, no reason. But um, the idea that having any happiness that's contingent on the impermanent world is insanity. Or as you would say, conditional. Yeah, right? exactly. Or by causing conditions... That's the basic premises. That's not sustainable. Exactly. So zoom out a little bit. Mm. The show will go away at some point. The dinners will go away at some point. Mm-hmm. The respect will go away at some mm-hmm. point. All of it's the same. This is what Ramdas teaches. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're clinging to nothing. You're <laughs> insane. <laughs> find the joy. Happy for no reason means find the joy and the bliss. That's not even, I wouldn't even say it's hiding. It's right there for you mm-hmm. when you tune into the pleasure of being. Right. of awareness, mm-hmm. of consciousness. Yes. And you can do that even in the midst of something as difficult as making a TV show or even worse, in the midst of waiting to hear if you do get to make something like a TV right. show. Those long 24 hours of waiting. That, I mean, Or in the midst of hearing that your show was canceled. Exactly. Of course. Is it still good? Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Because guess what? Yeah. The show's already canceled. That's my point. Yeah, that's like the Zen saying the cup's already broken, right? The cops already broke. Yeah. What are you talking about? Show. <laughs> There's no show. And I'm already dead. That's not that's no. not sad. That's liberation. I told Duncan Trussell. Hey man! Mutual friend. <laughs> I said, Duncan, don't yell at he's about to have a baby, which you just had. So yes. you guys I said, don't yell at your newborn baby. You're already dead. Do me a favor. So Let him learn how to speak English first. <laughs> that's so funny. Does he love saying you're already dead? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same sensibility of like let's not get hung up on reproducing the last iteration because that's going to be over soon if it's not over yet right and and if that's the causal you know condition for your happiness obviously it's it's a it's a tripwire you're going to keep going i will say you know maybe more in line you just made me think of one of the things that i think is really interesting that i don't hear a lot of people talking about is my ability to dip in because i what i was just thinking was 
being happy for no reason or just tripping out on the bliss of existence is the type of idea that makes no sense when you're low. Like mm-hmm. if you're just like, if your life just isn't going right yeah. or as you want, you can hear me say that or read that. And I know this because I have moments like that. And I'm like, what am I talking about? Future yeah. people will listen to past me and go like, what is he talking about? Because he's lost his way a little bit and he's sure. a little bit off the path and a little bit upset or whatever it might be. So what I wanted to say, because I think it might be in line with, with your book, you tell me, is that one of the strangest things that I've noticed is that my connection to 220 or the Bhav yeah. or enlightenment or God or whatever you want to say is enhanced the more that I am sort of in the flow of my life. Mm-hmm. This isn't not, it's not an idea that I hear a lot of people talking about necessarily, mm-hmm. but if I'm flowing yeah. and producing yes. and getting things made and finding fans and delivering joy, right. that's where God is hiding for me as well mm-hmm. in my creation. Yeah. So it's not just a complete disavowment Of like, well, that's just, that's just a game we play. It's really just about waking up. Waking up for me comes through that. If like, if I sell a show or make an episode or kill a performance, I, I feel it like electricity, not just adrenaline and endorphins, but like for days I'll be like, I'm being the Pete that I feel I'm supposed to be. And that's where the whole thing is hiding. It's, It's all rolled up behind that. I would say that's the essential premise of the book. Yeah. Is that for, and this is something I did get from Trung Rumche, but I held it myself before, during, and after the, the conversations that, that we had about it. But it's for centuries, the spiritual and the material domains have, have had their own. There's a lot of history to yeah. it, there's a lot of uh, interesting stories about it. But, like, you know, some great Buddhist masters would call this the red dust world. You shouldn't, you should just. If you, there's one teacher said, if you spit out uh, something into the dust, are you going to try to scoop it back up and put it back in your mouth? Yeah. It's done. And then in the material <laughs> world, they would go like, oh, this is just some woo-woo bullshit. Uh-huh. And the premise of this book, but it's in total continuity with the work and the study I did with Trungpa Rinpoche, is that it is possible to integrate them. For Crazy, me... Creativity, well, spirituality. Making about. What Ramdas says is, he's quoting some disembodied person, I think, but uh, you're in third grade. Take the curriculum. Like, take mm-hmm, the class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're pushing it all away. Alan Watts told Rondas, you're too attached to emptiness, which I think is really sure. funny. Is there something about, as, a, as someone who's raised in the Christian tradition, and, and we have that too, this is not my home, I'm just passing through. Right. I mean, you can see it sometimes in the politics. of right. like, who cares about the earth? This is just yeah. a holding place for heaven. Um, obviously a dangerous idea. Um, but to... To find God in something as unlikely as my stand-up special, which is laden with profanity, or my show, which features sex or drugs or whatever it might be, but for me, that's where that, that's where God is. It's it's yeah. a very spiritual thing. And I think if I could say so, that you know, um, I find that your stand-up has this sort of thread of goodness in it, despite all that. But that's why the new special is called Dirty Clean. Ah, Dirty know, Clean. Which <laughs> because. I think the distinction is between like sometimes they say ugly. Is it ugly? Sure. I don't care if you say, I, you show the warts. Yeah. Well, that's the good way. Yeah. But then there's an ugliness that's just like ugly for ugly's sake that sort of makes everybody feel icky and degraded. Right. Yeah. What I don't care about swearing or talking about sex or drugs or whatever it might be. Yeah. I I don't want it to be ugly. I don't want it to make people feel degraded. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to feel more fearful and more alone. Yeah. But it, the title sort of comes from the fact that I would get off stage and old women would come up to me. And this is true. And they'd say, I love how clean you are. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I said cocksucker. Mm. Like I said the f- <laughs> on stage. Mm-hmm. Like, But they, they're picking up on what I'm happy to hear you're picking up yeah. is there's a thread of positivity. Yeah. That's, that's sort it's of not Pollyanna. It's not a naive day. It's a very, you know, kind of weathered. I hope so. Yeah. Well, I can say from experience, it's weathered. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I feel very weathered. <laughs> yeah. Well, Pete, um, it's so great always, you know, you and I chatting is like a good tennis match for me. You know, it's just <laughs> I like love get it. Out and hit the ball around. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, I've always uh, really wished you such happiness and health and joy in your life. And that's just been a natural feeling I've had 
for you since we met. Yeah. And, um, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your, your, your journey and your vision with uh, other folks who will be picking up on this. And by then we'll know if we're in the fourth season of or crashing me. or the first season of, of who knows the rest of your life. Oh my God. <laughs> and as you said, I think the first day I saw you either way, it's all good. I'm sure it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.